how the war is waged, what God wants. And 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 tells us that we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use, they're, they're not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And I love the emphasis here is we notice what we demolish. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God that, that, are, that are distorting. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Jesus Christ. And so we understand that this war is a war of ideas. It's a war of truth battling against lies. And Satan's number one weapon is, is lies. The lies that, that, that we believe that break the circle of love and trust. And that broken love and trust results in fear and selfishness. And fear and selfishness results in all those destructive actions or behaviors the Bible calls sins. And many people like to focus on the deeds, forgetting the condition of the heart that leads to the deeds. But it's really the condition of the heart. When you change the heart, the actions change. And this is this, this, these uh, persistent fear, self-based uh, behaviors are destructive to our minds, to our characters, to our relationships. This is a terminal condition, and the Bible says we're dead in trespass and sin. The healing solution. Lies believe, break the circle of love and trust. The healing solution starts with the truth. Truth believe. This is why the truth will set you free. Truth believe destroys lies and wins us back to trust has to start with the truth, the truth about God. And when we're one back to trust, we open the heart. Because I trust you, Lord. You've been standing at the door of my heart knocking with truth. The truth has now shattered the lies that I've always believed. I no longer am afraid of you, God. I love you. I trust you. I open my heart. I invite you in. And, and it says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. And all of you who have accepted Jesus into your heart, you know that experience, that joy, that peace, that love. And that love casts out fear. You stop living in fear of God. You start rejoicing, celebrating. You have peace in your heart. And in this new experience of love and trust based on the truth of who God is, not just the cognitive truth now, the truth that you know by experiencing Him, by spending time with Him, by letting Him into your heart, you know the truth. And this love and trust based on the truth results in acts of service, not acts of selfishness. Acts of giving, not acts of taking. Acts of beneficence, acts of love. And these acts of love and service and beneficence witness the kingdom of God and help us grow in godliness. And it takes the message forward. So notice the whole healing cascade in this war starts with the truth about God. Because the truth destroys lies and wins us back to trust. And that's the key. So understanding that, we want to identify the various ways Satan lies, the types of lies, and then we can wield the weapons of truth to demolish those strongholds. And the core lies are always going to be lies about God, which leads to distrust. And we've been emphasizing this whole weekend that the root lie that is the root of all of them, and there's many, many branches of these types of lies and manifest in many ways, but the root lie is lies about God being that God's law is like human law. This is the root lie. And when we accept this idea that God's law is like human law, then we accept the idea that God's justice is like human justice, and we accept the idea that God's justice is like human justice, and that means God is the source of inflicted pain, inflicted suffering, 
inflicted punishment, which means that we, we realize that we've done wrong, it's our fault, but, but, but just God, he, he, has to, he has to be just, and so he has to punish because that's what we do and that's what we think, and therefore we need to be protected from the judge. And so we create theologies designed to hide us or protect us from the judge, or we create beliefs that are antithetical, meaning they're, they're, if one is true, the other can't be true. Like God is love, but if you don't love him, he'll torture you in hell or kill you. And that does not make sense when you understand the law of liberty. And why does it damage the mind? Because if you try to hold both of those beliefs at the same time, it's unreasonable. You can't reason. And so people will say, you know, I don't really think about that. I just take that on faith. And once you go down the trail of turning off your reasoning, turning off your critical thinking, turning off that ability God has given you to examine facts, evidence, truth, to weigh things out, to be fully persuaded in your own mind, once you surrender that, then you are vulnerable to believe anything. And it damages the mind. Now, irrational beliefs, beliefs that make no sense, nonsense beliefs like, I love you, but if, if you don't love me, I'll, I'll, I'll kill you. That's nonsense. That's an irrational belief. That's not the same thing as unexplainable beliefs. Unreasonable beliefs are irrational. But there's many things we can believe we can't explain that are rational. For instance, I can believe a jet engine will fly an airplane. We'll power an airplane so we can fly. Very rational. But I can't explain to you how a jet engine works. It's unexplainable to me. I don't know how that works. There's many things that are rational and believable, logical and sensible, that we may not be able to explain. We're not talking about that. We're talking about these irrational, nonsensical, unreasonable things that are actually contradictory. That's the kind of thing that damages the human mind. The truth about God's law sets us free because we understand design law, then even if we can't explain mechanistically how something might work, we can understand um, process-wise how this is either true or not true. So we can understand, regardless of whether we can explain the mechanisms of eternal burning fire and those things, we can understand, if you understand the law of liberty, that God cannot be saying, love me or I'll kill you. But he can be saying, love me, let me heal you, because if you don't, you're going to die. Love can say that because of the condition with which you suffer, because of your circumstance. If you won't let me deliver you, you're going to die. I love you so much, I don't want you to. Yeah, love can say that makes perfect sense. And so understanding design laws gives us clarity in dissecting or differentiating these various ideas that can be put forth. You know, I, I, I read in a book recently that, this, that a demon will tell you nine truths to get you to believe one lie. And then there's a lot of truth in that idea. The most effective lies are those that are mixed with some piece of truth. They're just warped or distorted slightly. Remember how Satan tempted Christ by quoting a scripture, taking a little piece of truth, but not quoting it quite accurately and misrepresenting it, making it appear to say something it didn't. So as we come back to design law lens, it becomes very clarifying for us. 
And we understand that sin itself is the source of pain, suffering, and death because sin takes us out of harmony with the law of God, which is the laws upon which reality and life are built to operate. And only pain, suffering, and death occur there. And that makes a whole lot of sense. And then we understand the power of sin is the law, just like when somebody jumps off a tall building, the power that causes them to suffer and die is the law of gravity. That's the power. The law does not change. God does not change the law of gravity to meet the person flying through the air on their way to the ground. So if we're going to save that person, that person has to be delivered from that circumstance. And thus the human race, after Adam sinned, God does not change his law to meet the sinner in sin. God instead sent Christ to take humankind that was damaged by Adam and to alter the trajectory through his own action to open a new pathway and to take humanity back into harmony with God. That's what he came to do. God is always good and always the source of life. He's never the source of suffering, pain, and death. So, Another type of way lies or distortions or misunderstandings can get introduced is when, God, when symbols, even godly Bible-given symbols or rituals or ceremonies or theatrical acting out uh, illustrations or lessons are misunderstood, misapplied, or have false meanings attached to them. This is Isaiah chapter 1. Starting verse 11, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord, I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and, and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moon, Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And then, verse 18, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be made like wool. You notice God is berating the people of Israel for doing what? For all of the ceremonial things, symbolic things that they we're doing. And who told them to do all those things? Who gave them those instructions? God gave them those instructions. And, and then why is he berating them if they're doing what he said? It says in the text, because they were meaningless. They were doing ritual, symbol, without meaning. There was nothing of value in the symbol, nothing of value in the meaning, nothing that was healing. It was simply a an illustration to get them to understand the true meaning, which was reasoning with God through the evidence, through the truth, which will destroy the lies that they've been believing, which would win them back to trust, which would open their heart for the indwelling spirit to bring the victories of Christ into their life. Give them a new heart and right spirit. In the Old Testament, it's filled with this stuff. I will take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I will write my law in your heart and mind. This is all through the Old Testament. It was always about inner transformation of the person. They didn't understand this. They got stuck in ritual and symbol without meaning. Many people do this today. There's power in the blood, cleansed by the blood. Is there power in the blood? i.e. the red corpuscles, or maybe the white corpuscles. They're the, immune, they're the immune cells. It's the white corpuscles where the power is, not the red ones. 
Is the power in the blood? Or is the power in the one who shed his blood? And the blood is a symbol. What is it a symbol of? In the penal legal view, it's a symbol of the life that was, that was executed or punished in our place. And thus, it's the death penalty that has been paid for us. And that's what they will tell you. The blood represents the payment of his life for you in a legal fashion that gets applied to your book in heaven. Oh, no. Leviticus tells us the life is in the blood. The blood represents the life of Christ. And Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Where does Christ tell us his blood is to be applied? In a book or inside of you? So we must be partakers of the divine nature. We must be partakers of the life of Christ. We must receive his life into our hearts and minds. And that cleanses us from fear and selfishness. We get a new heart and right spirit. It's always about healing the inner man. One of our friends here, uh, Dave Lounsbury, uh, sent me a little note, uh, I think it was yesterday, and said at his church, the, uh, the, the favorite song at his church is, is There's Power in the Blood. And then he quoted, a, he showed me a little Bible verse in, in uh, Leviticus where it says that uh, when the sinner in the old symbolic system, uh, they could bring a lamb for their sin offering, but if they were too poor, they could bring turtle doves. But if they were still too poor, they could bring a half an ephah of flour. And so he says that maybe we should change the song until there's power in the flower. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant because it really shows there's no power in the flower. It's what it symbolizes, right? That's the same with the blood. But do you see how it's so much easier for you to see when we say power in the flower? Oh, that's just a symbol. But we've been so conditioned to think there's actually power in the blood when it's just a symbol of the life of Christ where the power is. So what law lens do you look through when you, when you uh, hear these symbol things? Do you say, okay, what law lens? Is this uh, just a rule? Is it a ritual? Is it a pain? Or is it somehow teaching me a larger reality, how God's kingdom actually works? What about covered by the robe? Covered by the robe of righteousness. We hear this one a lot. And it's often taught. And I in tongue-in-cheek, kind of point out the fallacy of the, of the legal view. The legal view is that when you accept the payment of Jesus in your behalf, then you're covered by the robe of righteousness, which means that when the Father looks at your, you or your account, he doesn't see anything about your corrupt, your unrighteous character, your sinful life. What he sees is the perfect life of Jesus, which covers you, and so he can't see the corruption of, of sinfulness in you because you're covered by the life of Jesus. I call it the candy-coated rotten apple theory take a rotten apple, cover it with candy, and it looks really good on the outside, but it's still rotten to the core. This is a fraudulent representation of a beautiful illustration. The robe actually represents character. And when we have partaken of the truth, which again is the metaphor of the flesh or the metaphor of the bread, because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we are to partake of the flesh, partake of the, the words of truth, when we partake of those words of truth, they become building blocks in our minds that, that dispel the lies, the distortions, the old ways of thinking, win us back to trust with new understandings of who God is. And as we're one to trust, we open the heart. And as we open the heart, then the Spirit comes in and we get the life of Christ. And our thoughts are brought into harmony with His thoughts. Our desires are renewed to be His desires. The fear and selfishness is replaced with love and trust. And this is what it means to be covered in the robe of righteousness. We become partakers of the divine nature. That's, that's the truth of God's Word. So again, when you hear these things, what law lens 
Am I understanding and explaining this through? A penal legal thing or how reality actually works to heal, transform, and renew? Symbolism without meaning darkens the mind, turns off the reason, impairs the judgment, and many people rest satisfied in some ritual, some symbolic. You know, millions of Christians go to church every week to partake a, a symbolic act of the, of the body or blood of Christ, and they think in that wafer or that, that liquid, they are somehow being cleansed from the wafer and the liquid. It's just symbol to teach the reality of partaking the truth which dispels the lies, being one to trust and experience the Spirit taking the life of Christ and renewing us in Christ's likeness. What about blind faith? Believing without evidence. This is a common one. Have you ever heard the virtues of blind faith? God, how much truth supports Satan in his war against God. Zero. No truth supports Satan. All truth supports God. He is the source of truth. Satan is the father of lies. Now, if you have no truth on your side, do you want people looking at evidence? No. If you do have truth on your side, you say to people, come, reason with me. Examine the evidence. Check it out. Weigh it, test it, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the more you're willing to examine the evidence, the more you're willing to follow the truth, the more you discover how beautiful God is. And the more Satan is exposed as a fraud. And Satan doesn't want that. So he teaches this virtuous, this idea, well, we don't ask for evidence. We have faith. We don't need evidence. We just believe. I even saw written in a Bible study guide once, Something that may not be an exact quote, but it went like this. We don't need to have faith to believe the sky is over our head because we can look up and see the sky. We need to have faith to believe in the God who lives beyond the sky because we can't see him. And many people, as I read that in class before I uh, critiqued it, I heard some amens. And I said, does that mean then when Jesus returns in the clouds of glory and we see him face to face, that we will say, Jesus, I used to have faith in you, but now that I see you, I don't have faith in you anymore. <laughs> you see, this idea of blind faith, that because we see something and we don't have faith, is not what faith actually is. I think when I meet Jesus, my faith will even get stronger. What about you? So let's strategy with Satan use beliefs based on faith without inquiry, without evidence, which is known as spiritualism. Spiritualism is the pursuit of knowledge without investigation or the, inve uh, and the investigation of evidence. Without investigation of evidence or use of reason. This is what spiritualism is because he has none. What evidence has God provided us? He's provided us three threads. We talked about it in our very first talk. He's given us, revealed to us the truth of himself and what's happening in the great controversy and, and the consequences of rebelling against him through the histories that he has uh, had recorded in Scripture. So he reveals truth to us in Scripture, but Scripture tells us his divine nature is seen in what he has made. His laws are the standards and the constants upon which reality operates. And our real-life experiences also reveal how life and reality works. 
So God has given us three threads of evidence. We want to harmonize those. Another way Satan leads us into temptation is trusting emotions. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one of us is tempted when by his own evil desire, feelings, emotions, he is dragged away and enticed, James 1, 13 and 14. And so many people trust their emotions. They make decisions based on their emotions. Emotions in and of themselves are not, are not simply evil. They're just emotions. They can lead us into temptation, and they can be completely fraudulent. One of the things you have to remember is that feelings can lie. The operative word there is can. And the reason it's so hard for people with their feelings is because feelings can tell the truth. Sometimes you have feelings that are absolutely right on. Uh, Mothers, when you gave birth to your child and they put that child in your arms and you were overwhelmed with feelings of love, that was not a lie. That feeling was true. But sometimes feelings can lie. And how can you tell the the difference between whether feelings are lying or telling the truth? Not by how they feel. You can't tell by that. So what I teach people are feelings are simply data points. They are, they are emotions to, to draw your attention, to get you to look in a direction, to get you to consider something that's happening. They, they pull your, and that's what they do if you think when you get emotional about something, your, your attention and energy is drawn to address something. But that's when you're supposed to kick in your reasoning. You're supposed to evaluate, why am I feeling this way? What's it about? Oh, what are godly principles? What's the truth? And you process those feelings through your, your clear conscience and reasoning abilities, weighing God's standards in line with that. So you look at Jesus in Gethsemane. He had strong feelings. And his feelings were not leading him down the path that he and his father wanted him to go. His feelings are pulling him the other direction. And that's where he did not choose to go with his feelings, He processed his feelings. He understood his feelings. He agonized through his feelings, but he chose to do what his good judgment said anyway. And that's a model for all of us. And we see many examples in Scripture, but the point, Satan will get people to trust their emotions. I have a good feeling about this. That feels right to me. Without comparing their feelings to truth, evidence, God's standards, his design laws, and so forth. Surrendering judgments to others. This is another common trap of the devil. People have struggled in their journey in life with decision-making, and as all of us in this room have done, we have all made decisions that did not turn out well. In fact, we've made decisions that we look back on that were foolish, that were bad. Or am I the only one who's done that? (laughs) We've all done that. Now, some, some people, when they've done that, they are overwhelmed with guilt, they're overwhelmed with shame, they're overwhelmed with fear of doing it again, they have a sensitive conscience in the sense they, they don't want to make mistakes, they don't want to be bad, they want to be good, but now they, they're afraid to make a decision again, so they need someone else to help them, so they look outside themselves for somebody they trust, somebody they believe knows what's going on more better than they do, and they look to that person to tell them the answers. I don't want to get it wrong, I don't want to make a mistake, and so they surrender their judgments to others. And they follow the lead of other people. Well, my pastor says, my church says, uh, the, the 28 fundamental beliefs say, um, the Pope says, the, the priest says, uh, somebody other than me who has studied more knows, and I'll, I'll do what they say. It's a trap. God says in Romans 14, 5, every person is to be fully persuaded in their own mind. We each have our own God-given individuality, capacity for thinking and reasoning, and we are to exercise those things. Because if we don't exercise them, here's the, 
one of those design laws. It's a law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. If you want strong math ability, you got to work problems. Strong musical skills, you got to practice your instrument. Imagine, in fact, going to a math teacher, two types of teachers. One teacher you go to, they illustrate a problem and then give you a bunch of them to work, and you work those problems, and you get some right, you get some wrong, they get corrected, and, and as you see where you got them wrong, you study that, and you work some more, and over the course of time, you learn how to do math, and you get less and less wrong. Another teacher you go to, and in this school, you understand that you're really afraid. You've been warned. There will be a test coming. One day, you will be examined. And then the day of examination, you better not have one demerit. You better not have one thing wrong. You have to be perfect. But good news, we know the right answers. There'll be 28 questions on this exam. And here are the 28 answers. And they give you the 28 answers and you memorize them. And this, 27, 43, 2, minus 7. You memorize them in order. The day the exam comes, you write down the memorized answers. You get them all right because they're the right answers. Do you know how to do math? That's much of Christianity. They go to organizations, schools, churches that tell them the answers. And they memorize their doctrinal statements, their creeds, what they are told is the right answer. They have no clue why that's the right answer. They have no idea how to process through. They don't have that ability that it says in Hebrews 5.14, the mature are those who develop by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. If you want strong math ability, you actually have to work problems. If you want strong critical reasoning ability, if you want to grow up from infancy to maturity, you have to think for yourself, weigh the issues, and problem solve. And understand, you're going to get some wrong answers. But the mature, when they get the wrong answer... They reflect, they look, they examine, they look for truth, and they correct, update their decision-making so they improve their problem-solving moving forward. The immature deny, distort, blame, double down on their mistake, or find somebody else to think for them from that point forward. What God wants, he wants our love, our friendship, our trust, our loyalty, our devotion. That's what God wants. And it can never be achieved using the methods of Satan, the methods of the world, imperialism, a list of rules with threats of punishment. It is only achieved through truth presented in love, leaving people free. Thus the way the Spirit works, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. God's warriors will present truth in love, leaving others free. See, we have nothing to fear. If somebody sees it different, it's okay. I present to my patients the dangers of cigarette smoke. And if they go out to smoke anyway, I will still love them as their doctor. It is okay. I give them freedom to do that. They will not have as good a health as if they quit. But you know something? They have the freedom to do that, don't they? Same thing with any truth of God's kingdom. If you decide to reject the truth, there will be painful and damaging consequences that will come to bear. We don't have to hate the people that do that. We don't have to throw stones at people that do that. We should be compassionate, merciful, gracious, loving, waiting for the day that their sickness gets to the point, and it inevitably does. They will show back up at the doctor's office struggling to breathe. And what do we do? We intervene to put them on the path of health again. So God's warriors, truth, love, leave others free. God's warriors think for themselves. They're persuaded in their own mind. 
And then they harmonize scripture, science, nature, and how experience works. They have an integrated understanding of reality. And they understand and then put into practice God's design laws and how they live their life. And move past symbolism and understand those symbols and those metaphors to the reality and for what the reality that they're pointing to. We, we, we move past symbolism to reality and see and want to understand to the greatest of our ability what that reality actually is. And that leads us to have genuine wisdom, growing up into the wisdom and the stature of Jesus Christ, understanding friends of God as he's invited us to become. Now it's time for your roundtable dis discussions.